Welcome to All About HR. I'm your host, Tom Horn, and I'm on a journey to learn about all things HR. I'm documenting my conversations with thought leaders, HR professionals, and real employees about everything from recruiting, workplace of the future, benefits, you name it. We're all about HR. Let's go. All right, we are back with Tom Horn learning all about HR. Very special guest. I'm on location today up here in Fort Collins, Colorado. Our guest today is Brooks, a.k.a. Bubba Mitchell, much beloved professor of entrepreneurship at the University of Wyoming, former HR leader, author, historian, founder, and developer of the first computerized job interview. He did it on an Apple IIe. He literally was the first person to ever put somebody in front of a computer to apply for a job. I could not be more excited for this conversation today. Brooks, welcome to All About HR. Thank you. Glad to be here, Tom. It's a pleasure. It's a beautiful day here. We're sitting on a golf course. You got a, you got a great spot here. How'd you end up in, in, in Fort Collins? Well, uh, the story behind that, I was a professor at uh, the University of Wyoming of Entrepreneurship. Uh, I had a business uh, called Aspen Tree Software, and I used to tell students, look, guys, I am an entrepreneur who happens to have a Ph.D., which is why they allow me to teach here. But you need to understand, I've been there, I'm doing it. So when you say, well, if you're so smart, why haven't you done it? Well, I have done it. I'm not a PhD trying to tell you how to do something. Um, my business was very successful. I sold it to the British in the year 2000. And I just happened to have dinner at the old Baldy Club over in Saratoga, Wyoming with the president of Exxon who was just retiring. And he told me how he was going to be uh, living in Houston at one of the country clubs there. And I thought, wow, you're not going to Florida or Arizona? No, that's what he did. I thought, well, that sounds like a great idea. Uh, Fort Collins is only 60 miles from Laramie. And we have a beautiful golf course here. And there's a lot. And I said, why don't I just build a house here on the golf course? And I like that. And I can eat here. And I can pick up my cleaning and and it's just a wonderful place to live. Very fortunate to be able to do this. Exxon executive inspired country club lifestyle. This That's is uh, correct. Bob Bybee. This is the way uh, to go. Was his name, and he happened to be, by the way, the grandfather of Scott Verplank, who was a very famous Oklahoma State golfer and on the PGA Tour for several years. Oh wow! Excellent. Right. He win any uh, any of the big championships he, or? won the Canadian Open and uh, never won one of the top four, but was always in the hunt for them. Scott was a great, was a great golfer. I always feel like that, that's where I always ended up, like adjacent to the success <laughs> I was chasing, but close enough that everyone said, hey, you're doing great. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not where I want to get to. And that's, that, that's the goal. Right, exactly. You mentioned Aspen Tree. Tell, tell us about that that business that you founded, how did you get there? What did it do? And then what was that arc before well, you sold it in 2000? When I worked for Pepsi, I ran into some guys who were doing what was called a weighted, a weighted application blank. And that's where you would take application blanks of people who succeeded at a job and people who did not succeed. The criteria could be how long did you stay, how much did you sell or whatever. And then you would go through those application blanks and you would compare the responses between the successful and the unsuccessful groups. So, for example, 
uh, were you employed when you applied for this job, yes or no, on the application blank. Well, you might find out that the successful group, 20% more of them were employed when they applied as opposed to the unsuccessful group. And then you would say, okay, well, that's a factor, so you would assign a weight, mm -hmm. a weighted application uh, score to that, which is basically the same system of credit scoring. So then you could actually score a person's application when they applied for the job based on the numbers for that job for that company. So it's like getting a custom-made suit. Well, and then you would give the score back and you would show the managers how to score the application. You could actually cut little holes in a piece of cardboard and lay it over the application blank, plus two, minus one, whatever. And this person scored 15 points on a 35-point scale. They're kind of in the middle or whatever. Well, the problem with that, I knew, so I started doing that and uh, developed the statistical process for it. And the problem with that was that you had to give that scoring key out to managers. And managers didn't like it because they wanted to hire, especially in a company that had many different locations around the, the United States, they wanted to hire who they wanted to hire. Right. And, I don't, that hasn't changed. No, that has not changed. <laughs> you know, and uh, so, you know, maybe one of my questions that turned out to have a weight was, uh, are you currently going to school? You know, yes might be worth two points. Well, little Susie comes in to apply for a job, and uh, the guy hiring her, uh, she didn't get enough points, but he knows the scoring key. So he says, Susie, you're going to school? No, sir, I'm not. I saw you at Sunday school, well, you know, a couple of days ago. Oh, yes, I guess I am going to school. Good, plus two. Okay, <laughs> so basically it's applicant yeah. coaching, and uh, yeah. it was a very, uh, and you just couldn't keep the, the scoring key uh, private. Well, I was driving in Texas, living in Dallas, Texas at the time and doing consulting work. And, um, I kept driving past this store that sold computers, computer land computers. Oh, those are giant, you know, refrigerator type devices that my friends sell for $500,000 to big right. corporations. And so one day I, um, stopped into the computer store uh, computer land and said, well, all right, what's this computer about? And that's when he showed me the Apple II computer. And uh, it didn't even have an internal disk drive. You had to plug the disk drive into the computer to make it work. Well, what can this computer do for me? Well, it can um, balance your checkbook. Well, that's not important to me. I'm going to balance my check. When I balance my checkbook, I take it down to the bank president's secretary and let her balance it for me. <laughs> right. okay. It can regulate the water on your lawn. I don't care about that. And when my lawn gets dry, I water it. Well, it can regulate your temperature in your house. And um, that doesn't appeal to me either. But then I thought, wait a minute, weighted application blank. Could someone write a program that you could actually ask questions of this computer? Are you going to school? Yes or no? You know, uh, whatever like that. And it would assign weights to it. And then I could put in a lot of other questions that, that didn't have weight. So these managers in the field wouldn't know where the score was coming from. And I thought, well, that would be kind of nice, wouldn't it be? And then I could ask, well, if I'm going to do that, then I could ask a lot of other biographical questions because I'm a believer in what's called biodata, biographical data about people. I'd much, more, I'd much rather know 
biographical things about you. You know, are you going to school? Right. Do you play a musical instrument? Do you ski? You know, what level right. of your, as opposed to how do you like purple or red better? Or, you know, right. No, no, no. But Bio, I, go ahead. It, it's funny because right now that's starting to show up on a lot of job interview type of questions. Yeah. And it's like this new revolutionary, yeah, right. like, oh, we want to learn about you. And like, wow, this company's asking about me. So you're saying... That's that was actually a foundation for you back in the early '90s, building yeah. this out. Yeah, biodata. That's that was it. And it, it's so much of that. Sometimes it's counterintuitive. Um, for example, um, you know, a question that almost always was related was your present employment status. People who have jobs when they apply for jobs almost always work out better than people who are unemployed when they come in. But then you could put a bio score on that based on doing what, based on what doing a classical criterion validity study. It's the same way again of making a credit score for a bank loan. So I started doing that. So I started asking all kinds of bio questions, and let the job applicant do it. Well, people would say, "Well, wait a minute. Now this, you got to understand. This is like back in the 1976 or so, a, a computer. Oh my God." You know, right. computer, oh my, oh no. Yeah, you have to forget and remember what it was like Yeah, not and, too long ago. Well, God, these people can't run a computer. And I said, well, I can't run a computer either, but let me think this through. So I said, okay, I found a part-time programmer. And I said, can you develop me a, a question that would just ask the person a question on a screen and they can answer it multiple choice? They said, NQ. Right? I said, okay, can you program it so that we could put decals over keys that would say A, B, C, D, E, F, G, N, Q, next question. Okay, And they just punch one. And then what we could do, I went down to a picture frame store and I said, build me a picture frame mat with little holes in it that I could just lay over the computer and have the key oh, wow. all it exposed with A, B, C, D, E, F, G, N, Q. So a person would come in like Tom Horn, and I would set him down and say, okay, I would just type in the name Tom Horn, and then the computer, Apple II computer, would say to them, is your name Tom Horn, yes or no? People would freak out. How does it know my name? Because I just typed it in. That's yeah. how it knows your name. So A for yes, B for no. Tom, are you presently employed? A for yes, B for no. If yes, then branch to next question, Tom, how long have you been unemployed? Less than three months, A, three months to six months, B, and so forth. So it can branch. Okay, yep. so I did that, and I said, well, all right, because I know that people do a terrible job of interviewing. Then based on Tom's responses, okay, now, Tom, are you currently going to school? A for yes, B for no, Um you know, A, yes, B, full-time or part-time, B, part-time. Okay, then the computer would say, trigger a question that's on the printout. Tom is going to school part-time. Okay, most interviewers would say, Tom, if we hire you, are you going to continue going to school here? That is a horrible question because what? It triggers a yes or no response. Yes. A trained interviewer would say, Tom... Uh, if we hire you here for XYZ company, please tell me how uh, this will affect your part-time uh, your part-time educational process. Open the question up. Yes. So the computer would just print that question out and just say, 
ask this, say this, and that'll be and that'll be a great deal. I might say, well, I'm going to quit, or B, well, as soon as I uh, maybe I'm going to, I basically finished, or he might say, well, um, when I finish here in three months, then I'm going to uh, go to school full time. Whoa, that's interesting information. <laughs> right. That's really yeah. not going to work. Well, we had something in mind more than three months of employment. So that's what it would do. And then it would collect all of this data. People would send me those little floppy disks, and they would also send me a list of who they hired and didn't hire, and who was successful and who wasn't. And then I would continue, continue, start to build a continue a scoring basis for that company based on that particular job or some of the geographical differences and using that criterion validity study like that. Well, what we quickly learned, and there was some research at the University of Wisconsin by a guy named John Greist, that people would be more honest to a computer than they will to a live person. Oh, First of all, a live person doesn't want to ask a lot of questions. The computer will ask anything you want, and the job applicant is more likely to be honest because it's not like, well, this is a very uncomfortable answer or whatever. So we were getting more honest answers. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it is. That worked out. And then one day I said, wait a minute. Whoa, I am actually interviewing a person on this Apple II computer. And I came up with a concept of a computer-assisted job interview. And that concept, which is what I was doing, yeah. That we can expand it. That concept just blew up. The press got a hold of it. I'm a, I've been in every major magazine, journals, from uh, even the byline on the cover of Forbes magazine, a full page picture of me in Forbes magazine in a cowboy uniform. Really? Be- yes, because I wanted to I be. I want to see a, a picture of this. Huh? I got to get a picture of this. I'll put it in the show notes. I have a picture <laughs> hanging on my wall in here, up there. And it was interesting. Uh, Forbes sent uh, a photographer out of New York to uh, photograph me. And uh, so he showed up and I thought, well, we'll go to a very nice mountain location. And I took him to a beautiful place in the mountains. He said, well, this is nice, but this looks too much like Connecticut. They want me to (laughs) photograph a cowboy. I said, got it. So I found a big old pile of rocks. We built a fire and got some coffee cans. And I sat out by the fire drinking coffee. Well, this is how I have my coffee every morning out here in front of a fire. <laughs> but uh, but that was a concept. So I began developing yes. that concept, and it really began. So you, you got all this media from it. You know, you got this concept. You're starting to get some validation. You know, your concept's based on validation. You're starting to get some validation of the concept. Right. Was it why did companies just jump and go, yes, this is the perfect, great idea? Was it widely accepted or did you have to really prove this thing out? Or what, what happened once you started getting that? Well, once I got there, it was new. And there are three stages to the truth. The first stage is you're ridiculed. Uh, oh, come on. No, this is very impersonal. Right. Interviewing a person on a computer? Are you kidding me? No, no, no. We're much more personal than that. Oh, I noticed how personal you were. I went to your employment lobby. I saw people sitting out there three hours and they're drinking stale coffee, having to get someone to escort them to the bathroom. <laughs> and then you walking up with their job application blank and just stand there and say, okay, well, we'll get back in touch with you. Now that is a personal deal. No, it's, it's actually much more personal. But I was ridiculed for that. Uh, 
but I got through it. Uh, it was a tough sale, but then all of a sudden, I found a, a couple of companies that's wow, we need this. We're getting hundreds of applicants. This could help us. Uh, a Marriott Hotel, the, the airport Marriott Hotel in Dallas, Texas. Corbin Manufacturing, who makes very yep. uh, sewing business in West Virginia. Uh, Hart Schaffer and Marks, uh, men's clothing stores. All these people that had high turnover started to do it. Well, then you go to stage two, you become violently opposed. And I got through that stage. And, and then you go to stage three, is you become widely accepted as having always been self-evident. Oh, yeah, I knew you were going to make it. Yeah, boy, <laughs> that day you slept in here with that computer. It didn't work and, you know, whatever. I know it seemed like I wasn't behind you, but I knew all along. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. I'm going <laughs> to slap you across the face, you know, with a wet fish. And uh, so, yeah, that's how it all came. And then um, I was living in Dallas, uh, and I decided that uh, I wanted to live in the mountains and I moved Laramie, Wyoming, uh, University of Wyoming, uh, and the University of Colorado both had job openings at the time for basically behavioral psychologists. In those days, we called them industrial psychologists. Yep. I interviewed at Laramie and they kept asking me about my business. And I said, well, guys, I am going to continue to run it. Uh, and I thought, well, I'm not going to get this job. And finally, the head guy, John Jackson, at the University of Wyoming said to me, you know, we've never had a guy with a Ph.D. with entrepreneurial experience uh, who would like to live in Laramie, Wyoming. What do you think <laughs> about starting an entrepreneurial program here? And I said, bingo. So I went to Laramie. Uh, That's like the entrepreneurial, like, that, like if you're an entrepreneurial, if, if that's your... If you think like an entrepreneur and you get that offer, like, of course, an entrepreneur is going to go, yes, like that, uh, that seems perfectly aligned. Yeah. And uh, so I moved my family to Laramie. Everybody thought I was nuts. Well, it turned out to be marketing genius because I've always been a Western fan and a fly fisherman, but I kind of transformed myself into a cowboy. And I started actually the top executives of the biggest corporation in America to come to Laramie and speak to my class about entrepreneurship. Uh, and Rod Cannon, the founder of Compact Computers, and, and guys like that would speak to my class. Wow. But they were interested in Wyoming. Denver wouldn't be exciting, or Dallas, or, yeah, Laramie. Been there, done that. And they'd come to Laramie, and I mean, we'd take them snowmobiling or river rafting, take them up to Jackson, Wyoming, hang out up there over to Steamboat Springs uh, in Across the border in Colorado, and um, I built a business up there. I was able to hire some uh, a great unused labor force in Laramie, a small college town, where uh, the wives or spouses of professors who were very educated people. But what can they do in Laramie? Well, I would hire them to, you know, work for me as customer service reps. Let them work at home. Wow, believe that, 1987. Like working at home is something new. No, I did that in 1987. And uh, bring your kids in and out, move around, and built the business. Um, got it, you know, kept developing the software, developing the software. Uh, sold it to, you know, Exxon, Texas Instruments, bought it, Electronic ADS, 
bought it. Um, most of the major retail firms, Neiman Marcus, Bloomingdale's, Burdines, yeah. and all, uh, Great all, names. all bought my software, um, American Express. Um, so I, I have a question. So right now in the current state of coming out of the great realization, the great reshuffle, you know, I want to touch on this at the end because you noted how names change. But at the end of the day, right now, applicant tracking and Workday, and there's startups all over the place trying to do what you described having done a long time ago. And it looks like it's this full cyclical kind of process to where now a lot of the debates in talent acquisition are, should you be connecting with them personally? How much should be AI driven? How much should be, you know, hiring manager driven? <clears throat> and you are really ahead of that. So from where you're talking about building out Aspen Tree and where you started and where we're at now, where it almost seems like it's a new higher tech version of day one of that. Was there a dip to where companies really, you know, you, you mentioned all these wildly successful companies that adopted your technology. Was it a straight line to where we're at today? Or was there a point where companies went, no, nope, let's shift, let's just go back to no technology and people? Or has it been a straight progression of where we're at today? Because where we're at today feels like everyone thinks they've discovered something brand new, and you've been talking about it for decades. Right. Well, that's exactly right. I think, you know, I've been out of the field for a while now, and, um, but I think today it's gone way, 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 way overboard. Everybody thinks you just punch a button and it's done. You know, that's what <laughs> they want to do. They try to force you into that little mold. Well, you do this, yes. you do this, you do this, and then you do this. And this is how we do it here. And maybe that's the way it is. I don't know. These uh, Part of my software uh, years ago, uh, when I sold it to the company to uh, SHL Savile and Holdsworth, a big British testing and selection firm, then it wound up on Monster Board somehow. Um, but the whole purpose where they just friggin' lost it. The whole purpose to me of technology was then, and it still needs to be today, is to use technology to focus down on the best people for your, uh, in the selection process for your company. So that if you have a right. thousand people apply for a job, if you're fortunate to these days, well, who are your best 100 statistically? Now then go back and then talk to them and, and, and use technology to help, just like I said, to maybe suggest good questions. Here's a great question. Tell me how your future educational process will be uh, affected if we by working for us, okay? as opposed to are you still going to go to school, uh, and, and things like that, and open it up. So maybe the computer can help you suggest that question, which is what, yeah. what we would call a structured job interview, because a structured job interview, which was part of what the computer that I developed helped do, is a much better process than just sit down and don't tell me this or tell me that. Series of questions, series of responses, a structured job interview has been statistically proven research-wise for years to be the best way to hire and select people. And it's, it's really interesting. You keyed on something that I love talking about, which is technology is not going to solve your problems. It is a tool. It's not a... Right. Solve all. It's not going to do your hiring for you, but it can help you focus your hiring in 
a way that will get you the best results, the best candidate for the positions that right. you're looking at. Well, That's not going to do it for yeah. you. Well, speaking of hiring, you know, the, well, you're bringing back small memories here. The, the thing that I <laughs> learned very quickly, Tom, was most work, especially when it was mass hiring, and that was, my system was pretty much developed for people that hired lots of people like, you know, call centers and retail stores yep. and things like that. The HR people got rewarded for filling job openings, not for hiring good people. You know, the performance reviews would say, right. how was the average length of time a job was open? Well, what the heck does that have to do with anything? You know, oh, wow, okay, I got it. You know, yep. uh, let's do that. Or we don't have any job. Fine, you got the job, you got the job. Okay, I filled up all the jobs as opposed to how about you get rewarded for, let's say, the percentage of people who made it past a 90-day anniversary date or something. That right. would be a good one. And uh, which brings up another issue. Employee turnover was always a big goal that people were trying to solve. And I'd always ask them, well, what's your turnover rate? Last year, our turnover rate was 145% a year or 60% a year. I said, you just answered a question wrong because Dr. Mitchell never, never asked a question to which the answer is obvious. Okay, you, What you need to do, you see that behavior is so far away. Let's say that uh, annual turnover rate is 65%. And uh, so that's the number that's going to get rewarded. Well, then you bring in your managers. You say you're hiring people who aren't staying. Well, don't worry. We've got it fixed. Let me show you a graph here. And I'd have people send me their big computer runs, which they begin to have, and say, show me all the people you hired. Okay, and then show me the termination date. And I could quickly build a curve that would show you exactly when the curve would hump over. And I would say, you see this curve is humping over here at 45 days. Yep. So what you need to do is set up a reward structure that rewards people who stay longer than 45 days or 60 days or 90 days or sometime they're still here next week or whatever because that's the, re that's the hump point. If you get them past that, they're going to stay longer. So let's build a whole structure towards keeping people here past 45 days. And you reward that. And now then you can do what? You can hold hiring managers and things. You can hold them accountable, put their feet to the fire like that. They yep. can't dodge that and things get better. I, I can't tell you how much I love hearing this because there's a lot of people thinking they're reinventing or discovering this for the first time right now. And there's a lot of organizations that this is the number one place, in my opinion, struggle, which is getting in the right people and then keeping them. And not a lot of organizations or not as many are able to do that. And I think they're trying to figure this out. You've been onto this for a long time, which is, all right, you got them in the door. How do you keep them? How do you, you know, we get a lot of people that reach out to us at people element and they're not wrong, but it's, Hey, we need to solve retention. I need exit interviews, which totally great place to learn. But you're talking about where we see a lot of success as well as, looking at retention at the front side, not on the exit side, not to discount exit side, but that understanding that retention curve early is your best chance at retaining employees. Is that correct? That is exactly correct, Tom. And so retention begins with hiring the right people, people who fit the profile of the person who's staying with you past 45 days or you know maybe a year, depending on the job. So that goes back to that weighted application process, that criterion validity. Okay, here's a stack of applications. 
hopefully now good, using good biodata that you collected from the computer, who stayed with you, and here's another group of 100 or so who didn't, or whatever. What are the differences in the data between these people in building that model? Yeah. And then rewarding that. And uh, part of that, though, also comes from another great piece of research that I always quoted and incorporated into this with the research at the Menninger Clinic by Carl Menninger in Topeka, Kansas, about, I don't know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, I guess, with the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps under John Kennedy almost failed. I signed up for the Peace Corps. Wow, that's going to be me. I'm going to go to Africa and I'm going to show them disease control, clean water, uh, you know, gardening and all of this, modern things. And then today in my golden years, I'm taking my grandkids and my family back over. See, there's a statue to me, <laughs> Grandpa Bubba Mitchell. He brought it to the village in Natawanga or whatever, you know, over here like that. And then before I went to the Peace Corps, I said, what in the heck have I done? Well, I didn't do it, but a lot of people did. The Peace Corps almost failed because people were going over there and um, just, I, got, I, got, I can't do this. It's called, you know, the rubber meets the road. This is not what I thought it would be like. Yeah. Well, what Carl Menninger was hired to figure this problem out, and what it was was called the morale curve. Well, the, I, the morale curve has been my guiding beacon for my family, for my students, anybody. And a morale curve is that any change in your life, especially a change like going overseas with the Peace Corps, right. starts out with high anticipation, great excitement, and then when you get over, oh my God, you know, the mosquitoes, the water, I can't sleep, what, the, what am I eating here? You know, yeah. and suddenly your morale just drops to the bottom. And that's when people would bail a new job or, you know, in mm -hmm. postpartum blues with new babies, you know, boom. Or after a big party. Do you ever get depressed after a big party? I was so excited. Now, yeah. oh my God, after Christmas, everybody, oh no, I'm just, how can I deal with this? Maybe even in Absolutely. our interview today, Tom, the morale curve is being manifested here. So then... So now I can prepare for it. So this is helping me already. Right. So yeah. <laughs> so now then once you hit the bottom of the morale curve, then it begins to come back up and then it levels out. So the, the, cure, uh, the cure for the Peace Corps turnover wasn't, well, okay, you need to understand it more before you go and be prepared for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The goal was, hey, look, this is going to happen to you. Your morale is going to hit the toilet here in about, you know, three or four or five, six weeks. Before you say, I want to go home like that, just stick it out for another three more weeks. And then if you still want to go home, I'll let you go home. You know, or I'll pay, give you a first class ticket or something. But just stay here three more weeks. And all of a sudden, three weeks later, well, it's not that bad. Well, that was the whole process in a new employment, a new job, new excitement or whatever like this. And then it wasn't like that. So we would build that profile based around when does the person hit the bottom of that morale. And just get them to just say, hey, don't just hang in here with us. And things are going to get better. And they always do. That's a, uh, I've never admitted this. You just described what happens to me with this podcast. I do an interview and I am so jazzed up and excited. And then I spend six hours editing and I get excited, but it's also starting like, oh, this is starting to be a lot of work. And then there's, I got to find the next person. I got to prep for it. And and then I hit this low after the excitement and then 
heading into it, it's like, all right, I got to get to this another interview. And then I go and talk to the person and it's just, boom, I'm so excited again. And yeah. it's, it's a, uh, I've never thought about it that, and I don't want to like talk about it negatively, but I think that's a very real thing. This, this curve you're talking about. Well, that, and and I feel it often. I've never consciously thought about that till just right now. Well, it's, it's a life curve. I mean, it can happen in a four hour golf match. Yeah. You know, I mean, you yeah. know, a, a, a one day fishing trip, a five day fishing trip. Or a new job, um, you know. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know. I used to say, "Dad dies, and the kids go to mom, and mom, you know, you count your blessings and all this." Mom's probably depressed. Well, you should count your, you know, whatever. What? No, you go to mom and say, "Mom, get off your chair. We're going to lunch with your friends right now. Yeah. We're going to do something," uh, and. Um, you know, that, that curve isn't it. It's an absolute that's going to happen, but it can be stopped, changed, refocused, or at least help. You can surround it to get through it to where it comes back up. Mitigated. So that was part of the, so how do you do that? Well, basically you just explain to people, this is, this is natural. Right. You, you know, no matter how bad thing, it's going to be better tomorrow. Your new job that, Oh my gosh, this, that, the babysitter, I don't know, whatever. Just hang in there, and it's going to be better, you know, or find that hump point, which I would help people identify statistically, and just say, look, if you'll stay past 90 days, there's a big bonus in there for you. Okay, just stay here. Just basically, it's going to, you make it this far, you're going to feel better about this. And, and that's the same thing with life. I mean, I like to, I have a, I like to ride bicycles. I have to gel, oh my gosh, going on a bike, oh no, going down, changing my clothes. Looks like it might rain sometime. Well, it is going to rain sometime, but maybe not in the next six hours yep. or whatever. You kind of, but once you get on that bike and start going, wow, this is great. I'm so happy I did this. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. It's, it, when I ran gyms, we'd always say, no one ever said, I wish I didn't work out today. Right, yeah. Once you've worked out. Yeah, perfect. Before, it's, Ninety percent right. of the people go. I don't want to work out today. Yeah. Just walk in the gym and do one thing. Yep. You know, just lift a five pound weight or a ten pound weight, whatever. You're more likely to do two, three, yeah. and walk out going, "Whoo!" Yeah, so right. glad exactly. I did. Exactly. Very, very good analogy. So I know, I, and I want to make sure we, you know, we're, we're we've got some time here, but I I want to you turn that into another company, didn't you? This whole concept and evolution. <laughs> You know, from just that initial, uh, from that initial interview, but you took that another step further along these same lines. Well, when I sold a company to uh, SHL in London, which is a worldwide selection business, which I always tell my kids that was the blessed event of my life, right. not you. <laughs> that was my blessed event. <laughs> At least and you're upfront about. It. I tried to. Um, uh, Worked for them, they gave me a great job, but I'm just not corporate material. And I parted good company, but I think I made it a year. You know, and yeah. I said, I, sorry guys, I just can't deal with the corporate structure, not me. And um, so I knew about uh, employee reward systems uh, and, you know, instant gratification, and then what became known as intermittent reinforcement. And I thought, this is handled so wrong uh, by people. And, um, you know, so I thought, well, what if I took it? And the best example of intermittent reinforcement 
was slot machines. And I sold my employee hiring system, uh, Snowfly, to many of the major casinos in Las Vegas. And I made millions of dollars in Las Vegas, not gambling, <laughs> by selling employment software, especially right. when they'd open up a new casino and they'd get 5,000 people. Well, how do, how do you sort through that 5,000 to pick the, you know, the best 500 that you might want to be hiring here? And um, the biggest, I learned a lot about uh, gambling out in Vegas there. And about, I don't know, some huge number, 85% of the revenue in Vegas comes from what? You know what it is? I'm going to guess slot machines. Slot you machines, said that, but, right, because yeah. you don't have to think. Slot machines like are cheap. random reinforcement. Anytime you pull that lever, something exciting could happen. Your life could potentially change. Right. Okay? And so... Pulling that lever, just getting that hit of adrenaline, reinforcement. So I said, why can't I put the same kind of excitement into a job? So once again, I get developers and I start off on, uh, you know, another process. Here we go, ridicule, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know at least you knew. Imposed, but, at least, and, but I knew what was going on. So uh, I developed a company called Snowfly uh, because... I used the name Snowfly. I could develop a fishing fly, and I could build it around a fly fishing theme, right? And uh, put my Snowfly on shirts and coffee mugs and something you'd things. connect to and engage with too. To connect to that, and I could invite clients out to go fly fishing with me in the West. But the idea was that let's just take a simple behavior for a person, let's say, making uh, reservations at a car rental company, okay. You might say, okay, uh, Tom, uh, today's special or whatever, if you upgrade a car rental, we're going to give you 10 points. Okay, and you can take those points and do a lot. Well, then you can go to a catalog when you get enough and pick something else you want. I said, well, that's no fun. How about this, Tom? If you upgrade a car rental today, we're going to give you three game tokens that you can go to a website instantly, it's a reward, yep. drop your token and play a game of chance like slot machine or catch a fish or spin the wheel or whatever, and you can win maybe 5,000 points or whatever. But now everybody says, well, that's gambling. No, it's not gambling as long as you can't replay and lose. Yep. Now it's gambling. No, no, you can't replay. So basically, Tom, your my software program would give you game tokens that you can play, which is fun. I can do it right now. Yeah. And you get your points. Well, then we hooked into uh, Amazon and uh, Visa and things. And those money, those points can then go instantly to your debit card or to Amazon where you get whatever you want. Right. Not what the company wants you to have. Oh, yep. wow. Look at this. You know, I really don't need another pair of sunglasses or whatever. So that's what uh, Snowfly and um, that's been a, um, it's been a, a slower to accept than I thought. I sold that company uh, to some uh, employees three years ago, and they headquartered in Salt Lake, but they're still doing quite well, and Snowfly. And you go there, and uh, they will help you set up an employee rewards program that will give you game tokens instead of points. And which, by the way, something that... Uh, I don't think they pursued with uh, at Snowfly, and I never really got into it. But where that really needs to happen are these customer reward programs. 
Imagine how fun it would be in customer rewards. Instead of getting points, you get game tokens. And yep. you can play, you can engage with the company, and, uh, and that's, that's, that's called the, the, the ability to not know what you win is called intermittent reinforcement. Yep. So sometimes you get something, sometimes you don't. I hate to say it, but it applies to animals. You know, uh, yep. Instead of giving your dog a kibble every time, sometimes don't give him something, sometimes giving three. Uh, that's called intermittent. And, positive, and it needs to be positive, by the way, intermittent positive reinforcement. And a lot of that was the work of a great uh, behavioral psychologist, uh, Aubrey Daniels, um, and his company in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and Aubrey was a great influencer in my life many years ago on the power of positive immediate reinforcement and intermittent as well. It can change behavior uh, very significantly. And um, that's what we would use the snowfly and the token reward for. Let's come up with a behavior that you're interested in changing and let's tie it to this. It might be upgrade a car. It might be reach an anniversary date. Uh, it might be coming to work on time uh, and all of those things. I mean, just take something as simple as coming to work on time in, in some jobs and you get yeah. reinforced for that, you know, and maybe intermittently via the, the snowfly token game that I developed like that. Well, your day starts off good yeah. uh, and you get this as opposed to while well, you're five minutes late and your supervisor makes a snotty comment and I don't know, it just starts tumbling downhill and one thing leads to the other. The next thing you know, another person says, I quit. You know, I can't do this anymore. And I think that in today, with all this stuff going on, with people not working, boy, I think there's an opportunity there that, that needs to be fixed. And I'm convinced that something like an intermittent reinforcement schedule uh, immediate could be a big, big, big help towards solving those problems. Absolutely. And when you boil it down, we are just... We're all just animals and we all think we're so evolved. And I talk about this when I do demos that people element, you know, we're talking about our survey mm -hmm. platform. Like we all think we're so evolved. I've got a PhD and I've done this and that. But, you know, when you click on an answer for our survey, it'll like light up to a different color to reinforce, you know, stronger behavior, stronger color, like strongly agree. And that works. That works on CEOs. That works on people because we're just built to like. Right. That, re like, I clicked on it and it lit up. Like, we're just built to like that kind of stuff. Right, right. And I think we give ourselves too much credit, but I think when you roll it back, it's always there. And, you know, you named it Snowfly, and I don't think I'm coming up with this just on my own here, but it reminds me, I've been taking my son fishing this summer. Mm -hmm. The first two times we went fishing, I was so excited. He caught nothing. And I was like, I don't know if I like fishing. And then we went to Lake of the Ozarks, and he hooked his first fish, and that was three months ago, and all he wants to do is fish now, based on that. And he's had, we went out this weekend, we caught nothing, but he got a hit. Right. And even though he didn't get the full reward, that hit was enough that he wants to go fishing again, because he knows he's going to catch it next time. Sure. And it's that, right. it, that excitement of not knowing whether you're going to catch a fish or not, and, and I think is what's driving it, which is exactly what you're talking and, about. And fishing, by the way, is the perfect example of intermittent random reinforcement because when that fly or that lure or that bait's in the water something exciting could happen and it has happened before and uh, over the years if I'm out fishing and I see somebody looks like they've been fishing that same place for years I would say 
tell me a story, and they all have a story about it. Yep. I was here one day, and I mean, all of a sudden, my fishing pole jumped in the water, and I jumped in after it, or whatever. <laughs> yes, the water just erupted. You know, I mean, all of that, and and uh, of course, I'm an avid fly fisherman, and I could tell you hundreds of stories. Of just like two weeks ago, slow day, and uh, but you know, put that fly out there, and all of a sudden, movement under the fly, and a 24 inch brown trout. Wow. I mean, yeah, that's torpedo nice. hit. Yeah, yeah, torpedo hit, exactly. So, sure, that's it. Well, and on the flip side, I was telling you about my best day of fishing, but by the end of it, I was like, this is kind of boring. I'm just catching fish every cast. That period of not catching anything, <laughs> of having to like really think about it and keep just sticking with it. And then you get that, you know, I, you know, I hit a lull. I stopped fishing. I was like, I'm catching everything. I'm going to go do something. I'm going to go have a beer or something. And I took an hour and a half off and then went back on and I wasn't catching anything. I was like, oh, no. And then when I got that next fish, yeah. it was 10 times more exciting exactly. than when I was catching 20 fish in a row. And that, that's the intermittent yeah. piece that was really kicking in, right? Yeah. Well, the first time I went to Alaska many years ago, it was exactly like that. We were way up there in the Nugget River. Plains in, rafts floating down the river. I mean, how many do you want to catch? Uh, this is not that interesting anymore. Yeah. And um, so it's the same thing, you know, uh, fishing is just a great example. You know, that lure's in the water. It's got to be in the water. I've never had a fish jump in the boat and grab it. Uh, <laughs> right. but, but it's got to be in the water. Something exciting could happen. That's why fishing is so alluring. It's not a sure deal. But it could happen. Well, the gamification of things is alive and well in business. I'm in, I'm in sales. I've got a commission structure. Essentially, that's just a gamification of right. a salary. You know, if I do these things, I got to get my calls out. I got to do all these things. But if I can land some of these right. deals, then I can get different amounts of money or right. excitement at different right. tiers. And it keeps me interested. I don't do my job for money. Right. But... It certainly does interest me, like what the outcomes of all the work I do are, and it constantly changes right. every month, every quarter is different, right. and, and it keeps right. me interested in my job. So right. that, I think that's an example of, you know, like you said, it's it's not people haven't adopted this, they have in other ways. We just need to get more people to realize that that's how we're built, and this works, right. and it works at all tiers. Right, right, and it's proven. So talking about what works. You can tie all this together with engagement, engaging your hiring managers, engaging the companies and getting the right people. And then you get them and engaging those people and getting them past that kind of the dip of the curve. What are some, and, and you know, we talked about this a bit, but you know, what are the intentions of engagement? You know, when you're trying to engage these people, you know, you want business outcomes, but I feel like you get a lot out of engagement, you know, from your perspective, from coming from IOPsych and from coming from being a professor and a founder. Um, let's talk about your time running organizations as an HR leader. Where did you focus on with engagement and what were your goals when you were focusing? Well, first of all, it's a very good question, Tom. Uh, engagement to me meant that you as a employee or associate, I think more of an associate, you understand what we're trying to do here. Um, and if you don't, this, is, this isn't going to work. 
So for me, engagement was getting people involved, letting them make their own decisions. Uh, just the old yep. deal was just get the job done. I never had vacations for my uh, associates. I never had sick leave. I never had funeral leave. I never had new right. baby leave. I said, if you need time off, take it. Okay, yep. Now, that didn't always work. But for the good people, the people that I still love years later today, I could name you many, that, you know, this is your job. And if you if you are engaged with me, and, and, be, and that's because it is my company, okay, so, but if we're engaged here, then you're one of these precious people. Um, just give you, the, you know, the, the two different examples here. Now, one a person, they would go out customer service, and that was their job. I used to say, now listen, customer service, and they, I would send them out on the job for the first time. Maybe a little sewing kits you would get, the needle and thread in them, look like a little matchbook. Yeah. Yep. I'd always give them one of those. They'd say, what's that for? Because when you go out there to this big customer, these were big customers. I mean, you're dealing at the top level. You know, like Kevin, you know, you're not dealing yep. down here with a HR manager or local store. You're going to New York or Chicago. You go up there. I don't want you to kiss their rear end. I want you to take this sewing kit and stitch your lips on their rear end. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want you to do. Okay? Well, now, the, the different, the engaged, the, the unengaged employee would go out uh, and say, okay, uh, Brooks, I came back from San Francisco with Carson's or whatever was out there. And, um, you know, I met someone that you need to call. I think you might be able to sell them some software. I didn't like that. The employee I liked was a guy like Tom Lynch, who's a state representative down in Colorado. Huh? West, and yep. a West Point grad, too, by the way. And uh, Tom would say, Brooks... I met this person in San Francisco and I sold them some software. That's the engaged employee. That's the difference right, right there. And um, so those are hard to find. Uh, I never hired for, you know, what your college degree is. I hired, one of my best hires was a fishing guide. Okay, because right. I, he had a degree. And he was a fly fishing guy, but I liked the way that he dealt with me. And I said, you deal with me, okay, and you go deal with my customers like that, you're going to do great. And he did great and eventually started his own business. Um, yeah, those are engaged people that they, they get they get it. I don't know how else to how do They just yep. get it. And yep. uh, you don't ever have to worry about them um, or anything, but... And it's not necessarily working hard, but it's working thoroughly on the things that need to be worked on. Uh, just Love that. big at your desk or whatever doesn't mean anything. I don't know what you're doing at your desk. It's that you're just getting the job done and, and figuring out what needs to be done and, and then moving on. Fantastic. This has been this has been one of the better conversations I've ever had. We're, this is essentially our anniversary yeah. uh, uh, show here that we've recorded. So first fireside chat here. Love being uh, in person with you, Brooks. Any, any parting thoughts on where you've come from with the workforce and all your time and, you know, IO psychology and 
validation. And I think that's something that needs to be talked more about today is everyone thinks, I know this, but there's science behind this. And you know, when I'm selling to companies, well, this company said this, and they said this, and I go, listen, fact of the matter is, the research community at all funnels essentially back down to the same principles. Like the psychology and the build out is a base. And there's all this other distracting stuff, but there's science behind this. And the world's gotten to this, this needs to do this for me and this needs to do that. And it's all about hiring and naming things. And the workplace is just nuts right now. Right. Well, You've been here a long time. What, the, what's your advice? What are your well, thoughts first, on where we're at? The first thing that I would tell anybody that, and I used to, in the entrepreneurial classes that I didn't teach because I say I don't think it's teachable. But I would say you need to understand if you're one of the 15% of the population of the United States that has the ability to be an entrepreneur. And if you're in that 15%, you got to do it. Otherwise, you'll never be happy. I thought I was mentally ill working for Texas Instruments and Pepsi. Great jobs. Right. But I said, this is, this is not me. It doesn't feel right. Thank God Almighty, I was able to figure out in my life, in the behavioral sciences, how to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And that, that I, 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 would, I would be here talking to you now, had I not discovered that, that I'm not mentally ill, I'm, I have to do this. So the first bit of advice, you gotta figure out where you stand in that spectrum. And uh, some people say, well, being an entrepreneur is like being a rock star. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, not, it's not about money. People think it's about money. It's not about money. It's yeah. just about doing your own thing. You know, it's risk. you're a risk taker. I am not a risk taker. Risk to me was having a boss who could change my life. Right. That's risk. I don't know what he or she's going to tell me today, whatever. But being in charge of my own life, being a professor at the university was, I never really told them that, but that was just kind of a hobby because I was an entrepreneur. Yeah. And um, they couldn't, they could fire me. Uh, I, I turned tenure down because I don't believe in tenure. And um, but they could fire me tomorrow. My life doesn't change. Oh my gosh, I got to go get another job. No, no, that my life doesn't change. But um, the, the main advice would be to people in human resources today, guys, stop trying to be cops, policemen. Okay, you want to be a success. Douglas McGregor, one of the great management thinkers of all time said it 60, 70 years ago. HR, personnel, industrial relations, whatever you want to call it, human asset manager, you are a staff job. Okay? And you want to get a seat at the table? You want to be on the A-team? Don't be a cop. Okay, You go figure out what the problems the line manager has, and you solve those problems. Love That's it. how you get on the A-team. You help the line manager solve his or her problems. And you'll get that seat at the table. You'll be a valuable seat at that table. As opposed, well, we need to think about this. No, you can't do that. That's fine. I mean, there's so many rules these days. But find out what the line management problem is. Back in the day when I was doing things, the problem was line managers. I can't get enough people who could stay along long enough to learn how to do this job. Okay. Well, HR manager or whatever. Let me show you how I can maybe help you solve that problem, okay? As opposed to you can't hire this, you can't do that. No, just stop it. Um, get, that's how you get on the A team. Solve the problem. Solve the problems. I love it, Brooks, Bubba. 
okay? Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me up to your home. Thank you for your time. And everyone out there, thank you so much for listening to this episode of All About HR. I've probably learned more in this hour than I have in any hour in the last year since I've been doing this. So absolute pleasure. Well, thanks, Tom, because I'm very flattered that you would show an interest. Uh, I'm 79 years old now, still kicking. But uh, lately I've taken that that you've shown an interest and it's kind of a manifestation of how I've been introducing myself to people lately. Hi, my name is Brooks Mitchell, Bubba Mitchell, PIP. PIP, previously important person. Nobody (laughs) seems to care anymore. (laughs) I'm glad you care. Well, the work you did was important. I think these conversations are wildly relevant to today and very, very important. And I hope our listeners uh, uh, take this to heart, get me feedback, and I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep my curve positive. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been All About HR with Brooks Mitchell. Have a great day, and we'll see you back again soon. Understand, engage, inspire, and retain your people like never before. People Elements Employee Experience and Engagement Solution delivers powerful intelligence, giving you the confidence to act. To learn how you can gain a better understanding of your employees, please visit us at peopleelement.com.